I'm Maxwell Griffin, and this is Your Black Friend, a podcast for folks who may not have black friends but want to learn about what it means to be black in the U.S. Every episode, I'll invite one of my black friends on, and we'll answer anonymous questions people have about being black. So if you don't have a black friend, then my black friend is now your black friend. Your black friend today is Lynette Clementson. Lynette is the director of the Wallace House at the University of Michigan, home of the Knight Wallace Fellowships for Journalists and the Livingston Awards, which is a prestigious annual prize for journalists under 35. Since my wife was a Knight Wallace Fellow in the class of 2019 and 2020, I first had the pleasure of really getting to know Lynette on a trip to northern Michigan with the rest of the fellows. Not only did I quickly learn about the importance of this program, I was fortunate to meet some game changers in the world of journalism. After bonding over games and sharing our love of kettle corn that weekend, I continue to learn just how impactful she really is. Lynette has also worked as a correspondent for Newsweek magazine in Asia and the U.S., as a national correspondent for the New York Times, and as a senior director of strategy and new initiatives for NPR. She was founding managing editor of the website The Root, launched by the Washington Post Company in 2008. So, let's welcome Lynette. Thank you for having me, and thank you for we're we're mutual black friends, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. We're each other's black friends. I love yes. it. I love it. And I always like starting by just just checking in and and seeing how you're doing. That's such a loaded question these days. The like the quick and easy answer is I'm fine and holding up, and then the truer answer is that I'm kind of spiritually exhausted. I like to say that uh, <laughs> nowadays that I'm learning. I feel like I'm learning about myself and learning about other people, which is a beautiful thing. Um, so th- that's that's on my end. It's a, it's a silver lining. I like to I like to find during these times. I think it's, sure. it's it's definitely a time for looking for and appreciating silver linings wherever we find them. Hundred percent. Agree. So I, I can't help but think and remember the times when I was, I mean, I come from a place where I was more times than not the only black kid in the class. Um, and I can't help but remember those times when, okay, everyone turn your pages and we're going to talk about black history. And then you get all of those eyes that turn on you and look at the one black kid in the class and say, oh, I wonder wonder what he's thinking when we're talking about slavery and we're talking about uh, racism. And let, I, wonder, I wonder this, I wonder that. And I think it's interesting to me now that we're talking about discomfort in approaching these uh, uncomfortable conversations, talking about race and racism uh, nowadays, where it's like, where did that stem from and I can't help but think. I mean, I mean, is it in those moments the white kids in the class? I'm sure wondering, like, what is he thinking? What does he think about this? How does he feel about this? But I don't think those those thoughts were ever verbalized. So I'm wondering, was that kind of a, a, a stem or a root of kind of this discomfort that people feel today? And I'm curious what what your thoughts are on that. Well, I think, so I have uh, two teenagers, a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old. And so I get to both recollect 
my own feelings about these things and also watch my kids uh, in their real-time experiences with, um, you know, being one of few black kids and in some cases the only black kid in whatever they're uh, doing. And I, I think in some ways, you know, we're talking about silver linings um, and you described yourself as kind of learning and, and looking for silver linings and things. And, and I described myself as sort of in a moment of spiritual exhaustion. And, mm-hmm. and I think the spiritual exhaustion part comes from we're in a moment now where people in, I think with very good intentions are asking, how do you feel as a black person? And while I think we can appreciate the intent of that question and maybe sometimes it is better to be asked than to have somebody assume they know what you're feeling or your experience is at the same time it's really exhausting and i think it is especially exhausting when people ask that question but they do not want or are not ready for the answer right and um and so Every time someone asks that question, well, how do you feel about this? You have to weigh in your mind how much of an answer you're going to give to someone and how real you're going to get with them and how open you think they would be to the exchange and how much energy you have for the potential exchange that might happen. And so all of these things can happen within one or two seconds anytime someone says, how are you doing or what do you think about that? Um, and I know my my kids this year, especially my daughter, who's in high school, where they're talking about a lot of um, a lot of elements of the racial justice movement pretty openly. Uh, she's more prone to giving people very honest answers than I was when I was 16. And she also experiences the exhaustion of that um, because because sometimes people who are your friends, when you tell them the truth of things, um, personalize it and give you sort of a yes, but answer and mm-hmm. a yes, but especially when it comes from a friend um, can be a very diminishing answer. Right. And yeah. Uh, collectively we we have we are hearing more people say out loud yes it is wonderful that we have a month of celebrating our accomplishments and our progress but it is also a time to recognize that that everybody just doesn't get to clap their hands and proclaim progress right because because everybody hasn't participated in that and we actually have taken some steps backward um and so we, if we're going to really be committed to it, we have to be committed to talking about things other than the I have a dream speech um, and like the five black people that that everyone can say one sentence about, that that's insufficient. And so you mentioned a th- something really important where kind of this notion of we don't want to lose this progress. And so I listened to a very fascinating conversation you led uh, talking about um, the Reconstruction period, and this was specifically during the election of 1876. And I want to, I mean, 
I would love to just kind of get your perspective on that because I, I feel like there are so many parallels that are happening to where, I mean, there have been so many kind of milestones and progress for uh, black people. In general, what are the parallels between that, if you don't mind digging into that a little bit? I had a conversation recently with Henry Louis Gates Jr., um, a noted scholar and professor at Harvard, and and Eric Foner, a scholar at Columbia University. Eric Foner in particular has written several books on Reconstruction. And so, you know, I've been diving into these things during these months that we're all locked in our homes. And I really wanted to have a public conversation about this area in our American history after the Civil War um, mm -hmm. that we actually don't learn about in schools, right? You're talking about what you learn during Black History Month. Were, were you ever taught anything about Reconstruction in school? Oh, absolutely not. It's interesting you mentioned that, too, because clearly there's a lack of realness, I would say, in, in Black History Month curriculums. It just feels like there's a sense from white people that slavery doesn't exist, is seen as progress for our country because of that quote-unquote fact, where it's like, I don't know if there's enough recognition that slavery still exists in a variance of ways. Um, so I think... Yeah, that realness is what's lacking and might be what's leading to some of these conversations today. Yeah. And, and you know, after the Civil War ended, there was actually a very concerted push politically in the country to try to, I think, you know, realize the true meaning of what it would be if we decided to be the America that we wrote down in the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution, where we were pursuing liberty and justice for all, right? And all men are created equal. And so during Reconstruction, it was this great flowering of freedom for African Americans after the end of slavery. And, you know, black people were elected to Congress, black men, of course, at the time, women were mm -hmm. still disenfranchised from the vote, but black men earned the right to vote, they earned the right to run for office, they did run for office, there were numerous uh, black men who were um, congressmen and senators. And as we were making progress, people in the South started to lose their minds about, about the progress, <laughs> right? And so in the election of 1876 between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden, there was, it was a very contentious election. If you go back and read, read about it, it will sound very much like the election we just went through in 2020. Um, and the Republicans who were the, the, the union, the, they were the abolitionist party. They were the union mm -hmm. party at the time. They had a chance to actually move toward progress. And rather than doing that, they struck a deal to end the election peacefully. And they pulled back their troops from the South. And long story short, the deal that was struck coming out of that election allowed the South governing rights that basically began the system of Jim Crow. And so we had this period of growth after the Civil War, and the country got too scared about what Black progress might look like. And they took this enormous step back that basically created a 100 more years of straight-up terrorism. 
that the country signed off on. And so it's really important for us to go back and study those things and understand that because I think now we are coming through a period of time where we had what many people might see as some years of progress under the Obama administration and in the same way people getting losing their minds about what that meant yep. and a rise of white supremacy that led to the Trump era. You know, we're in a moment now where where people may feel that that if the election went the way that they wanted it to go, that they can breathe a sigh of relief and think that that everything's been righted. I want to mention this this takeaway I got when I listened to your conversation is I loved how you talked about, I mean, along those lines, there has to be a v- vigilance about progress because, again, it's, 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 I agree, there's not a time to be patting yourself on the back. I feel like we have to continue uh, <laughs> to push the pedal and, and really, really mean what we're, what we're saying and what our actions are showing. So We've lived through some horrific events this year, and I've always been struck when people you know, January 6th happens and people are storming the Capitol. And that is, you know, would be, was shocking for everyone. But then after it's over and I hear people say, or you, I heard people say after Charlottesville, I just don't recognize this country. <laughs> I'm like, oh no, I recognize it. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think that's so interesting too. And back again to draw, draw the parallels where it's like, you, this isn't the first time this has happened and this is something that people don't know about and i was fascinated by listening to your conversation because it's just listening on not only rights being granted than taken away i mean there's a harsher treatment given to african african americans fighting for basic human rights than there were to soldiers fighting against their own government and i yes. feel like yeah that is that is crazy and that's i don't know that's something i took away that i thought was really powerful and and shouldn't be overlooked that this isn't the first time people who say that they don't recognize uh this as the united states either are really missing huge chunks of our history or are being willfully ignorant and either one of those things is problematic yep well, this is already a very, very powerful conversation, and I want to get more into this, and I want to get more into those anonymous questions we were talking about and uh, and kind of dive into those. But first, I want to take a short break, and then we can continue our conversation then. I can't forget to mention a fun fact about Lynette. She also hosted a nightly rap and hip-hop radio show in Pittsburgh in the early 90s that helped support her through grad school. She's a true fan of old-school hip-hop. Welcome back, everybody. We're here with Lynette, ready to get into some of these questions. Lynette, are you you ready to, to dive into these? I am. The first question we have is, who do I listen to and who do I read to see life from your perspective? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I mean, I don't know that I would necessarily advocate anyone seeing life from my specific perspective. I think 
I think that it's a time to sort of try to see life from a, a collective perspective of people who are non-white. And, and that can be, you know, reading Isabel Wilkerson's cast. It can be reading um, historic books, like the book I just finished reading, Stony the Road, which um, is about reconstruction by Henry Louis Gates Jr. It can be listening to The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, which is one of my favorite um, albums. And I listen to it still regularly because I think the whole album is kind of a work of beauty and gives a pers- particular black female perspective. Um, it can be actually uh, going back and watching um, the autobiography of Miss Jane Pittman and learning about the life of Cicely Tyson, who we just lost at age 96, right? So I think that um, it can be diving into the poems of Amanda Gorman, who I just got introduced to when she did her inaugural poem. You and me uh, both. And who is just amazing. So I think that there are so many places that people can dive in. And I and I also think, so the things I just mentioned are specific to African-American history, but that is certainly not, um, it's not, that's not the only place I turn. Uh, you know, we've also been living through a time where um, the rights that were laid out in the 14th Amendment to grant birthright citizenship to people have also been taken away from um, from our Latino brothers and sisters. And the, the immigration situation is, has been horrific, not just over the past four years, I should say, but, but, but um, the Obama administration's record on immigration was, uh, was problematic as well. And so I think, I think that if we want to understand people's perspectives, we just look for the history, the art, the culture, the books, the music, um, and the and the lived experiences of people around us, and 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 make a commitment to look at them honestly. Yep, this is an interesting question as well because some of these questions are asking for an answer, but I think at the same time it's interesting because. You you can't help but wonder, is the solution, I need to read more from people of color and listen to more people of color. But then if you think about it, you're kind of listening and reading and and putting those ideas against your own perspectives, where it's like, I, that's why I feel like there's a value in conversations with, with other people and not, not just... Uh, not just people of color, but having conversations with your your friends and ab- about these topics because I think it introduces new perspectives that way. Um, I and it's almost like learning a new language, right? Where it's like you can do Duolingo and and babble all day, but I feel like it's arguably more effective if you uh, practice with native speakers and and practice uh, with other uh, speakers in that language. So. I don't know. I think Absolutely. It's... So, you know, I don't know if you you um, know this, but I, I actually uh, did my master's degree in East Asian studies and studied Mandarin Chinese. I mean, I was studying intensively in the United States, but my language capability didn't really take off until I moved to Taiwan and, um, and 
made sure that I lived in an all Chinese speaking environment and, um, and used the language every day and, and used it, uh, interacting with regular people, um, and not just within textbooks. And, and so I feel like that, that, that placing yourself in an environment where you can meet people where they are is really important. And, and, you know, I ended up living in Asia for six years and, um, and actually I think that time outside of the United States gave me a greater perspective, a very different perspective on life inside the United States Mm -hmm. when I had a chance to step out of it. Um, and, you know, both of, of sort of people would ask me when I went to, when I went to Hong Kong and they would meet me and I was a journalist and, and it would always be a white American who would say, well, how, how are you doing here? And I would always know what was coming when people asked mm-hmm. me that question. And, and, and they would say, well, and I would say, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you know, how is it for you? Because, you know, the Chinese are racist. And my answer would always be compared to who? What, like, what are you talking about? I think you're, you, that you might just be saying that because you feel like you're in the minority here. Um, and it's the first time you felt that, but I, your experience here is different than yep. mine. And, and, um, and so my time overseas was invaluable to me like in in so many in so many ways i can't even we don't even have time to talk about enough of of the ways that impacted me yeah and it's funny because i'm currently on my journey of of learning spanish and i'm gaining all kinds of experience points on duolingo i thought i was ready for my first conversation my wife is is fluent in spanish and i was i was trying to be cool coming up and and i I, I started to try to have a basic conversation, and then she's coming at me with all kinds of things I've never heard, and I'm like, okay, maybe I'm not, <laughs> maybe I'm not ready for this conversation quite yet. Uh, but you know, but isn't that a beautiful yeah. thing though? Because because I I do think so th- that's actually a great example. Because my guess is, anytime you roll out with your Spanish, and you that people will just be grateful that you're trying Mm -hmm. right and that they'll meet they'll meet you where you are and um i think also language learning is another way of when you realize that that people actually are tend to be very generous and 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 the effort you're making counts right and so if you're making an honest effort uh people appreciate that and i think i think that's a lesson we can all take culturally too right that if you're making an honest effort to understand something and to engage with people um you know sincerely Mm -hmm. that that's that taking those first steps is it's more than actually taking first steps you're actually you're actually closing a lot of ground yeah i agree and it's uh yeah i think it's about being vulnerable and removing I guess, defense mechanisms, because I still come across conversations uh, with people that say something. And and I'm all about kind of uh, impact before intent, where it's like, I know you, you didn't mean that, but you, you have to understand, like, the impact of what you're saying is still kind of hurtful to me. And this is coming 
in some cases from people who are like, but I've read X, Y, and Z, and I, I, I've read so many books of, with people of color. Like, I, uh, yeah, this is not what I mean. And it's like about understanding kind of the impact that's coming with some of the words uh, that people are saying still. But, but I think, I mean, is that a relatively new thing for you that you're actually saying to people? I know what you you meant, but here's how it felt. Because I, I actually think that's... um. That feels newer to me culturally, right? That, that we're being a little bit more open about saying to people, you know, here's actually how that felt for me, what you said. I think at least in, in my earlier years, I would, I would swallow more of, you mm-hmm. know, of how something felt, um, unless somebody was very close. Yep. Exactly. I and yes, hundred percent. It's it's something that is newer for me as well, and that that goes along with I'm learning, and I'm learning to to kind of recognize those moments and and be more open about how things and situations make me feel. Yeah, I had actually had a, a moment with a friend recently um, where we were talking about the January sixth insurrection, and the friend said you know, ah, I wish we could just get to a time where where people could just see that race just doesn't matter. And, and I just, you know, I said, um, you know, you've known me long enough to know that that what you just said is not something that I believe. And, and she, you know, pointed out that she was talking about sort of, in a kind of physiological right the epidermis of the Mm -hmm. skin and all of these things that actually race is a construct of all of these things that we know but um and i just said but you know everything about everything we've just been talking about is an illustration that race absolutely matters and um and if your goal is to get to a place where we cover that up that's the opposite of my goal I don't know if I would have said that to her a year ago. Oh, same thing. I there are have been many instances where I'm in conversation and I realized how important impact is of of people's words and actions um where it's that goes beyond intention where it's like uh I yeah, I don't think a lot of people realize the impact of some of their words um, when they feel differently or, or, or think that, I mean, they mean good intent. But I think that, you know, that goes both ways because I also have tried to be more conscious of when I'm talking about things having to do with race and understanding how if I'm talking to a white friend, they perceive that I am saying something personal about them. Mm -hmm. Yep. Right. And trying to understand how that feels Mm -hmm. to them. And then to, and to be willing to take the conversation to the next step and say, you know, it's one, I'm, I'm not, I'm actually talking about a larger system and not about you personally, but also it's, not the conversation can't go anywhere if if you're only perceiving this personally yeah 
You mentioned something in in your discussion where you say the there's an undercurrent that threads society that I, I feel like a lot of people don't realize that that's kind of influencing how things are happening as they are today. Well, I think that's one of the one of the most interesting parts of the discussion. Not not actually just of the last year, but I would say of the past several years. I mean, if even if you go back to, I, I look back to works of journalism, right? And so Ta-Nehisi Coates's works on reparations, I think that was a big turning point in a kind of national conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of the writings by Nicole Hannah-Jones where, where journalists actually starting to look at systems and viewing American racism as a systemic evil, not an individual trait. And turning that conversation around, I think, has been eye-opening and important. And um, it makes it easier for people to access, because it's actually not very, very helpful to talk about racism as an individual personality flaw. Do you agree with Ibram X. Kennedy's idea that policies are either racist or anti-racist? And is there a spectrum or is there truly one or the other? That's such a hard question. Um, I think it's hard for me generationally because I had never even really thought about things being anti-racist until he sort of brought this into the popular conversation. Um, I would like to believe that there's a spectrum, but I also believe there's a great value in the clarity of his argument, Mm -hmm. right? That the way we have framed racism thus far clearly hasn't been terribly helpful from a policy standpoint uh, and and from sort of a a national social standpoint. And that uh, if we're going to address things and recognize as a society that racism is a, a, is a collection of systems, mm-hmm. yep. right? Meant to produce certain outcomes and meant to um, retain power for certain groups of people and um, take away power from other groups of people. If we recognize that, then I think you have to concede that there is merit in his argument and that it is worth thinking about when we look at the decisions we make, the policy decisions we make, if we start to look at them, of okay, who benefits from this and who is hurt by this? If there is a, a sort of clear disproportionate impact of who is hurt by a policy, um, and that follows a pattern mm-hmm. right, of a historic centuries long pattern of certain groups being hurt by certain policies, then you would have to conclude that the that the policy itself um, is is harmful and follows a system of racism. Just because that word carries so much weight, I think, that there's this idea that there's someone's either racist or not. And 
I think that defense mechanism happens when if someone says something and you're like, Ugh, that, that was kind of racist, what you just said. And they're like, well, then I'm not, a, I'm not a racist. And it's, I think if, for me, it's that racism is, there's a spectrum. And I, I think it's not just a definition. There's a spectrum that, that I've been trying to kind of navigate and, and unravel a little bit more. Yeah, I actually personally don't use the term very often to describe people because I I think that the moment you you raise the term, people shut down, right? And uh I, I had I've had this experience um in my children's education and with at least one teacher um who I thought did not have appropriate expectations for my son. And uh, when I challenged it, someone raised, oh, are you saying that she's a racist? And I said, I'm not going to get into that conversation with you because the minute we start talking about that, all of her energy is going to be on convincing me that she is not racist, right? She's going to tell me that she voted for Barack Obama (laughs) twice and how could, you know... I've had these conversations, Lynette. And she is like a good liberal and how could she... And I'm really just completely uninterested in that conversation. My interest is in her teaching my son, right? And her acknowledging him in class the way that he deserves to be acknowledged. And her giving him the same opportunities and attention in class that she's giving to other students. And so you call that whatever you want, Um But she has a job, and my interest is in her doing her job. And if she's not going to do her job, then we need to have a completely different conversation about my son being in a different class. But I'm not going to have the racism conversation with you because it's not going anywhere. And again, I've had those same conversations where it's all the way to... You know what? You know, I I have black friends though, so it's I, I, I can't be racist. Or I've been in this situation where I've I've seen this injustice towards a black person before, so therefore I can't be racist by what I said. So I I agree. Where it's like it's exhausting to be lured into those conversations. Yeah, if people are not willing to engage honestly around it, I just can't waste my time on it. Same, same. I. This is such a heavy conversation. <laughs> Are we going to talk about anything fun? <laughs> Having black friends is also fun, Maxwell. Hey, it, it's not just heavy all it, the it's time. It's not heavy all the time, and it's 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 a beautiful thing. I think this is organic, and we've honestly just spiraled into things that that I enjoy talking yes. about. Yes, um, yes, it is. It is like this has been a year where people have learned things that I'm interested in. That you know. People say, I've never, I never knew that about you. And I'm like, well, you never asked. I've always been the same person. I'm going to throw this in there. You got a little background in hip hop and uh, rap and hip hop and old school, old school specifically, old school rap and hip hop. I just want to know, and you brought up, I know this doesn't necessarily fall into the category. You, you referenced Lauren Hill, but like what, I mean, what messages and what, what ha- could you learn from kind of, musicians and artists that are telling mm. impactful stories through their art. Yeah, I definitely am a first generation uh rap hip hop kid. Um 
And I actually do think Lauren, I mean, I, I think the miseducation of Lauren Hill is, is arguably, I mean, it, it, it would certainly be in the top 10, um, hip hop albums. Uh, I think that should be on anybody's list, but, but I actually, um, when I was in graduate school, I worked in a newsroom and I was a reporter and a producer. And on Saturday nights, I was host of a, of a local hip hop show. And, uh, while I was studying Chinese, and so I was like in doing East Asian studies, uh, in graduate school during the week. And on Saturday night, I would like go deep every, <laughs> every Saturday mm-hmm. night from six, six to midnight. Um, and it was like it was a great time, and uh, we used to have rap battles um, with LL Cool J and Big Daddy Kane, and have people call in and vote who they th- who they thought uh, you know was the was the top in any in any given moment. And I, um, you know, people are very critical, I think, about the misogyny and some of the other things in hip hop, and and I can get into long conversations about those, but I, I actually really, um, I'm kind of a student of and appreciate the value of hip hop in society. And, and as a journalist, I think music and culture and arts, uh, say things that we don't always capture in journalism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, hip hop, I think, it was was news in its own way and it was truth telling in its its own way um i'm talking about before it became highly commercial and so you know whether it was like a tribe called quest or public enemy or de la soul or main source or mc light that you could you could you could go and like dive in and feel uh, an experience of a people and of a generation that was being sort of honestly reflected again before it became very very commercial yep. and for me i mean it was it's really interesting because p- people sometimes see a disconnect between me like being kind of a hip hop head at one time and and studying chinese but in the 80s late 80s and early 90s when i did that I actually found a lot of synergy between the two things. And the first time I actually went to East Asia um, was the fall of 1989 and the Tiananmen Square uprising had just happened. And that same summer, Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing came out. And um, and in my mind, you know, seeing the young man in Tiananmen Square standing in front of the tank as that like played out on CNN and the whole world was watching these young kids standing up against the power structure in China um, and then being brutally taken down. If you listen to that and then you listen to, to fight the power and you watch do the right thing, those were about the same mm-hmm. thing. And um, or the wall coming down in Berlin. And, and I, like I think about, 1989 and those time that time that was such so formative for me um that it it didn't at all seem disconnected for me to be studying china and uh movement for freedom there or in hong kong that was about to revert to chinese rule and was sort of struggling to keep its democracy and what was happening in the streets 
in New York and with hip hop music and in, in sort of a, a, a sort of a new expression of sort of black empowerment. Yeah. And I, I love that. And it's, and yes, that was, that was an off the cuff question, but as you were talking, it's interesting because that's essentially what I am after as well is, is just the realness. And it kind of links back to, we need this more realness and less dilution. And I think, I mean, I'm, I'm with you that, that old school, old school hip hop rap and hip hop is, it, it was, it's, it was real. And, uh, that was the realness that that uh, happened before, before, like commercialization uh, of that genre. I think there's still some to be mm-hmm. found now, um, but I think that everything is so heavily segmented now that uh, you know people would say that you know, well, black people are supposed to listen to this, and white white people are supposed to listen to this, or white kids are supposed to listen to this black music and country is supposed to be this. And I actually also uh, really like country music too, which is not very different from a lot of rap music and some, especially if you look at the sort of country music and traditional rhythm and blues have so much in common and country music and rap. I think you can find a lot of tales of kind of very similar expressions of the hardships in life and um but people like to think of all kinds of reasons to keep people separate because there's money to be made mm-hmm. in that and so i i believe that there's in conversations and in uh in any kind of meeting or or interaction i think there it's important to have <laughs> i guess action items if you can say so i feel like there's value in leaving a conversation and thinking okay well how can i apply that today. So, I mean, what are things listeners can take away from our conversation and start putting into the world as soon as today, as soon as they, they press stop on, on this podcast? What, any good recommendations or resources to share? Um, I think there are so many lists of books to read and uh, things to do. I think that I don't know that I have anything to add. I think I think if people are sincere about getting to know about other experiences, um, that I guess one thing I would say is, is it if you're on that journey, it should be because you're really on that journey and not because you just want something to put on Instagram and like you want a virtue signal and, and like put down that you read a book or like I'm, I'm, um, like, if you want to do the work, just do the work. You don't need to tell everybody about it. And um, if when you I'll go back right to the beginning of our conversation, right, that, that when you ask somebody how you're doing, sometimes you're busy, but but, you know, I think we should all try to be more open to to really getting an answer to that question when we ask someone. And even if it's just a minute to give somebody a chance to truly respond and then reflect on how they responded and think about your role in however they're feeling. Um, If we all do that, right? If we, if we all did that a little bit more, we would perhaps be in, in better shape. I love that. And I love just the whole idea of vigilance, 
to maintain progress. Vigilance, absolutely. Like it is not a time to rest and take our foot off the gas. It is. It is not. Well, Lynette, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It's been a good conversation. I appreciate having you as a black friend. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> I'm your host, Maxwell Griffin. Our development producer is Priscilla Alibi. Our producer is Teddy Grant. Please join us next time.